0: I must have been five or six years old when I heard my first lesson with uh, morality or ethics, and uh, I was just a just a kid, but you know, I went with my mom to the store and I noticed that that when she needed something that she got it and put it in her basket and well, we did sort of go through a little bit of a uh, you know checkout process, but we went on out the door with our newly acquired belongings. And um, as, I, as I noticed that, I thought, I thought, you know, I really need some gum. And um, so I'm going to get myself some gum. And uh, I, I uh, found a, a piece or a stick, a packet of gum that really particularly attracted me. I don't remember my criteria, but... I managed to put it in my pocket, and out the door we went. And um, as I recall, back—well, uh, I won't say how many years ago it was, but it was a long time ago. As I as I recall, I, we were on our way home, and I was in the back seat chewing very quietly. When my mom said to me, "Chester, where did you get that gum?" Now, I still don't remember, actually, to be honest with you, if I knew I was shoplifting or not. I mean, I was just five or six years old, because I think I actually thought that I could just take it or something. I don't know. But that uh, precipitated a lesson on ethics. We don't take something we didn't pay for. That's called stealing. Now, it would have been okay and probably less memorable— if my mom had stopped with the lecture. But no, we turned around the car and went back to the biggest store I thought in the world at that time. You know, it was probably a pretty small Safeway store. But we went back to the store and asked for the manager. And then I got to apologize to the manager for stealing gum and pay for what I had taken. Now, that was a very difficult experience for me as a five or six year old, but I can tell you I never forgot. I never forgot that experience. I never forgot that story. My mom didn't just brush it under the carpet. She, she had me do something that would be a lifelong lesson in ethics. Where do we learn ethics from anyway? Where do we get the The morals that we have as a society, as individuals. You know, ethics can be defined in a number of different ways. It can be defined as the science of the ideal human character, or it could be defined, they could be defined as the science of moral duty, the science of moral duty, the science of an ideal human character. There are many ways that we define ethics, and in this world we actually have a little bit of a drift problem because there's, in, the, in the last about 50 to 150 years there's been a growing tendency to untether ethics from anything concrete. That is to say that ethics are what society approves of. You understand that concept? And so what is ethical in business? What is ethical in law? What is ethical in whatever trade you might be a part of is generally defined in today's somewhat secular and at times godless society as whatever is accepted by your peers. Am I telling the truth? Now, I've not been fortunate to take as many classes and ethics in a secular university, but from my friends who have and studied law and other business and other areas in, in a secular environment, what they have come away from is that is exactly what they're taught. They're taught that the, the, the world's understanding of what is correct business principles or correct way of, of practicing law, they, it's sort of like a majoritarian rule type of a thing. That's what defines what is ethical, what is right and what is wrong i believe today that we as christians have a higher standard of morality and a more concrete way of knowing what is right or wrong and today we're going to be looking once again at the life of abraham we're going to be taking his story the father of the faithful the father of all who would believe the spiritual father right the spiritual ancestor jesus said to the Jews, if you were really the spiritual descendants of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham, right? And so I hope that we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We will be doing the works or living the life that Abraham lived. And so we're going to be looking once again at what we can learn from his life. Let's just bow our heads for an additional word of prayer as we open his word, uh, God's word. Father in heaven, we just thank you that you've given us this opportunity. We thank you for the blessings we've already received. Now, as we just spend a few moments Considering your will and your way, we pray that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 14, the story we already looked at here, the story of Abraham and the, the kings of the valleys, remember that uh, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other, uh, the other kings, the, the cities in the valley were uh, overcome by enemy kings, and their goods and their inhabitants were carried away. Abraham musters up 318 um, trained servants who were born in his own house. Um, that gives us a pretty strong clue of how large a household Abraham had, right? He was very prosperous. he was very blessed, he was very successful. He takes 318, he also took his friends, the, uh, the, the tribes around him, and it's pretty clear in this chapter, Abraham had made friends. He wasn't just one of these isolationist Christians who said, I'm going to live a pure and holy life and not talk to anybody else. He had friends that weren't necessarily even of his own faith, but he made friends with them because he was a godly man, and he loved people, and he was interested in people. And so he and his friends, they go and they, they capture the uh, recapture, I should say, the people and the, and the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in the valley, and they come and they're, they're now met by the, by the king of Salem, Melchizedek by name, who was a priest of the Most High God, and the Bible records that Abraham paid tithes of everything, that he paid tithes of all. And um, the king of Sodom, verse 21, we'll pick up the story, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. This, is a, this would be a, hum, a, a, a huge windfall for Abraham. As wealthy as Abraham was, it's quite, it's quite certain to say that the cities down in the plain were wealthier. Wouldn't that be a pretty, pretty uh, safe assumption to make? I mean, you're talking about the accumulated wealth of five cities. 10% has just been given to the king of Sodom as, as his gift, but now 90%, the remaining 90%, is offered to Abraham as just a, a thank you gift we can rebuild our houses. We can rebuild our flocks. But we'll just give you this as the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah to, to show our appreciation to you for what you have done for us. Now, this would be a very a large gift. Now, I can imagine that if Abraham were there, uh, be, just because human nature is the same, we can say, well, he had 318 servants in his household. He had to have lots of money and not need any money. Have you ever known anybody that didn't need any money? no matter where you are on the socioeconomic scale, I suppose you pretty much feel like you could do well with some more. At least that's that's what I've experienced from the time I was saving my pennies in a piggy bank until now. Um, No matter where I've been, and I think uh, as I think of my Friends and acquaintances, and as I read the, the news and I see what's going on in Hollywood and the world and the stars and everyone else, there always seems to be a need for more money. And by the way, if you're a godly person, you for sure can always use more money because you can do good with the money, right? So I can just imagine that in Abraham's mind, there's, there had to have been some thoughts, at least for a moment, of, wow, what will I do with these millions of dollars, Imagine how I could, build, I could build some really nice altars, right? Get an architect. and um, I, He must have thought of something he could do. But what is Abraham's response as we see here in verse 22? Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I should not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Now, I want to to pause right here and just acknowledge that in other instances in Abraham's life, he seems to have had some ethical shortfalls. (laughs) Right? We often think of his trips over to somewhere where he thought others would be interested in his beautiful wife, right? And he said, Don't call, don't call you, I don't want to call you. Uh, uh, you know, my wife, I'm going to call you my sister. Now, was Abraham lying? Can you be half lying? <laughs> oh, he was, the women say he was lying. The men say he was half lying. Is that the way it is? <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I do believe that Abraham was technically, by the letter of the law, telling the truth when he said, she's my sister, because he, she was, in fact, his stepsister or half-sister, um, according to the Bible's record. He was his half-sister. That wasn't as uncommon today uh, then as it is today. Um, so here you have an instance where he's technically telling the truth, but his intention is to deceive, isn't it? And that's why he wasn't telling the truth. And so there were times in Abraham's life where he, he has some compromised ethics. And, and aren't you glad that God works with us when we have some of our missteps and mistakes? Aren't you glad? I mean, God, worked, God actually intervened miraculously to save both Abraham and Sarah in those situations, including giving the king a dream. Now, how... How likely is that? A, a heathen king, but God, the God of heaven, loved Abraham enough that even though Abraham is not really, is not really doing himself a service by, by not having an unimpeachable ethics, God still seeks to preserve him from the consequences. Um, not always possible, but God seeks to. God always wants to bless us. Do you realize that? Do you realize that God wants to bless us even when we don't seek him? He can't bless us as much when we're not living within his principles, but he always wants to bless us. So here you have Abraham. He says, "I will take nothing from the thread, uh, from a shoestring to a sandal strap. I'm not going to take anything that is yours because I don't want people to look at my prosperity and say Abraham is blessed or Abraham is wealthy because of the wealth of the sinful cities." of Sodom and Gomorrah. If I am blessed, I want to know, I want people to know that it's because I serve the most high God. And by the way, he is, notice what notice what he says, the most high The possessor of heaven and earth. Everything belongs to my God. Everything belongs to Him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills themselves. He owns all of us and all of you. He owns everything that we say that we have. And Abraham says, I don't need you to give it to me because I, as I follow my God in heaven, is going to provide for my needs. That's why. Abraham refused this gift. He wanted, to, he wanted us to know, his spiritual descendants, that God is able, God is able to provide. Well, let's just explore this idea of ethics a little bit, Abraham and ethics. Where did he come up with this idea of, of this um, not receiving money from Sodom? Apparently, his ethics are quite altruistic. He's wanting to be generous. That's very possible. His ethics here are not based upon what others expected. You notice that? It would have been completely understandable, not only to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, but to all the others around. It would have been completely expected for Abraham to receive at least a portion of what he had conquered and, and recovered, at least a portion. But Abraham's ethics were not based upon the, the common denominator around him. They weren't based upon what society expected, at least not in this situation. They weren't based upon what people thought or a, a public opinion poll or, or what the majority had voted. They were based upon something different. They were based upon his relationship with the God of heaven, his ethics flowed from a relationship with God, and his relationship with God said that he wanted God to be able to bless him directly and not have to give it through the through the through the uh, sinful cities of the valley. He would have God bless him directly. His morality flowed from a relationship with God. Now, I want to I want to I, I I thought of this illustration, and I hesitate to use it now because it's a it's a um, it's become a political matter, and I want you to know that as a pastor, I try to stay as far removed from politics as I, as I humanly can. Um, I believe I have a higher calling, and that is to preach the truth of God's Word, and um, I, my, I, don't, I, don't, I try to stay out of the political realm except where there are issues that I can support and speak concretely about. Um, but here, a number of years ago, a gentleman by the name of, of Ben Carson, you've probably heard of him, especially lately, he was, he was, his, he was scheduled to speak for the uh, graduation of 2012, as I recall, at Emory University. And you may remember that a controversy arose because a, a group of professors and students and alumni, about 500 of them, signed a petition that was a statement against Ben Carson's unscientific positions. The problem, they said, is that Ben Carson as a Seventh-day Adventist is a creationist. That was their big complaint. He is a creationist. Now, that probably wasn't the biggest thing that they had. They were disgruntled. They took one statement, one sentence, in fact, that Ben Carson had said in an interview with the Adventist Review sometime earlier. And this one statement, um, basically, I'll I'll share with you what uh, Ben Carson had said. They took it a little bit out of uh, context, but this is what he had said in the Adventist Review. By believing we are the product of random acts we eliminate morality and the basis of ethical behavior. For if there is no such thing as moral authority, you can do anything you want. You make everything relative, and there's no reason for any of our higher values. Now, this is they took this one sentence, or one of these sentences, and they said, look, Ben Carson is saying, if you're an evolutionist, you are unethical. Now, that's not quite what he said, is it? What he said was was creation, the fact that there's a being who created us, gives us a reason outside of ourselves to establish ethics and morality. And so this was what they sort of picked out of his statement, and they said, this is is a problem. Well, is it a problem? Is he right or is he wrong? Is our understanding of God a basis for ethics for right and wrong even for morality i want to just talk to you about what really ben carson is trying to say here i tend i do agree with him in this statement although he wasn't trying to say it to a a university professor audience he was saying it to the Adventist Review and there's a little different a little different audience there but basically what Ben Carson is speaking against is the godless mentality that includes at times evolution because evolution says we didn't need God to get here we don't know if even God exists if he does he didn't make us you see and um, evolution is often sort of coincides with a theory, a philosophical theory called materialism. Now, when we talk about materialism here, we're not talking about the, the desire for want or greed or, or the love of money, which is the root of all evil. That we sometimes talk in a, in a practical sense. We use the word materialism, right? Philosophical materialism is the idea that everything you do is a result of the matter that is inside here. In other words, your decisions are pre-programmed, really, because they are the inevitable result of whatever synapses and chemicals and everything else are already in your brain. I mean, when, if you remove God from the equation and you have this, this naturalistic idea of where we came from, it, it, for many philo- philosophers, it only makes sense that there's no such thing as a conscience, there's no such thing as a higher power. Spirituality is really a figment of our imagination because there's no God, there's no real actual spirituality. So it's all, it's all a result of the matter that we have. And materialism is defined as um, matter is the fundamental subject in nature and all phenomena, including mental phenomena and consciousness, are identical with material interactions. So God isn't working in your mind to make you convicted or guilty or anything else. It's all because of certain chemicals and, and, and material that's going on. Your decisions are sort of pre-programmed. It, 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 just, it happens that way because there's no God in the equation. Now, we don't really have time to unpack philosophical materialism, but that's the basic understanding of what, what, um, what materialism teaches, And um, I've had friends and family members who have confronted this in their classrooms and have become quite puzzled as to how to understand God in light of materialism. Well, you really can't. Philosophical materialism takes God out of the equation and it says everything happens because of this, it's sort of the way things, the only way you could have God in the equation is deism, which says God put it all here in the beginning and then left it to run its course. But philosophical materialism is absolutely um, opposed to the idea of God. God gives us freedom of choice. It's not just because of the brain cells that happen to be in connection in our brain. We actually have freedom to choose. Now, interestingly, when this matter erupted, this controversy with Ben Carson, um, he had had a clarifying statement. Of course, he still spoke at Emory and so, so forth. But uh, support for Ben came from uh, an unlikely source, the Princeton University, the moral philosopher, a professor there by the name of Ro- Dr. Robbie George. This is his statement. I want you to listen to it. Um, but of course, gentle Ben, and he is indeed one of the gentlest, kindest people one could ever meet, doesn't believe that his Darwinist friends and colleagues are necessarily unethical. What he believes is that Darwinism is necessarily materialistic. Do you understand what he's saying? Uh, This is a view about Darwinism that he shares with some uh, devout Darwinists themselves. And he believes that materialism, if true, is incompatible with free will and with ethical norms, which must be, after all, norms for the guidance of free choices, if they're to have any standing, force, and validity at all. Now he knows perfectly well that many people who believe in materialism are in many cases decent, honorable, ethical people. But he thinks that they lead lives that are much better than their formal philosophical beliefs would require them to lead. He believes that their commitment to materialism makes it impossible for them to give a sound account of the ethical norms which they themselves, to their credit, live by. Now, this is a secular philosopher trying to explain (laughs) what Ben really meant. Um, That evolution tends to beget materialism. Materialism says that we don't really have free choices. And if you don't really have free choices, you really don't have a reason for ethics in the first place. You undermine the foundation for ethical thinking. Well, the good news today is that we do have that foundation. And that's a relationship with God. A relationship with a God who says, this is how you ought to live relationship with a God who said, you know what, I want to codify. I want to codify what it means to, to live the way that you ought to live. And He wrote with His own finger Ten Commandments. If you, if you take your Bibles and turn with me there to Exodus chapter 20, we'll notice that there's, there's two divisions in the law. The first four commandments relate to how we, how we should have that relationship with God. And the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, verse 2, saying, um, well, first he gives a prologue here, and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. If you have been delivered from bondage by the God of heaven, the law is for you. Now, it's not a way to get out of Egypt, by the way. You understand what I'm saying? You don't get out of Egypt by keeping the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Salvation comes by grace through faith. Are we clear on that? We're clear on that. It's not because of anything I do or have done or can do or will do. It's by grace through faith in Jesus' blood and His righteousness alone. It's a miracle that I can be saved. If I'm saved at last, it won't be because I was the pastor, because I paid my tithe, or because I did anything good or stopped doing bad. It's because of Jesus Christ. But he says, I am the God, uh, your Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, this is how I want, to, want you to live your lives. Verse 4, um, you, shall have make no, you shall have no other gods before me. Number 2, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, a graven image, any likeness of anything that is in the, in the heavens or in the earth. Number 3, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. These are the the ways in which God wanted his people to live. And by the way, I truly, I honestly, sincerely believe that when we live in harmony with the principles of heaven, we are going to be blessed. God is able to bless us in a way that we can't be blessed otherwise. You know, a lot of research has been done. Uh, I'll I'll diverge here a little off my topic briefly. A lot of research has been done about the longest living people on the earth. You've seen the National Geographic, Blue Zones, probably, U.S. News, Newsweek. There's been a number of CNN, other programs, just exploring the longest living people. Guess who lives the longest of the seven Blue Zones, National Geographic defined? I mean, there's some pretty impressive over in Japan and Italy. and Among them, who lives the longest? You guys should know, right? It's those folks in Loma Linda. They call them Seventh-day Adventists, right? And Loma Linda, the highest number of centenarians in the world. And here you have, here you have, most of the other six people groups live five to six years longer. These people are living 15, 20 years longer. And you know what? They can't figure out why. I mean, they've studied it, you've you've probably seen the television reports, you've seen, is it the fact that they're vegetarians, are are Adventists the only vegetarians? First of all, and and not all Adventists are vegetarians either, so uh, that's sort of hard. Um, Is it because they keep one day holy? Um, Are they the only ones who who rest on a day? Is it because they have, the the fact of the matter is, it's all the above. It's a whole package. It's a whole lifestyle that God blesses as we live in harmony with principles. It's having that healthy community, friends and family. you realize relationships, having stress in relationships will decrease your longevity? It's having a support group in that community, a church family. It is having a healthy lifestyle, a healthy diet. Sure, that has to affect things. It's all of the things that God says, living at peace with God and man, friends, is one of the best things for your health that can ever happen to you. And it's not, it's not that other Christians don't do that. But one group might have one, and one group might have another. I believe God has blessed the Seventh-day Adventist denomination with a whole bunch of different principles that we, that we can help people with and we can be blessed by, right? And so I believe that when we keep these commandments, this relationship with God, that rest, that there are many other people that live healthy, but they don't have the health benefits that living healthy and having a Sabbath rest with our creator can give us so many things we can talk about the last six crea- the last six commandments here talk about our relationship with man our our horizontal relationship honor your father and your mother you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor you shall not covet your neighbor's house and or anything that is your neighbor's now Jesus when he came in uh, Matthew chapter 5 Jesus came and he sort of turned the the disciples and the Jews on on their ear because they thought that they had kept the commandments. I mean, they'd never killed anybody. Jesus said, wait a minute. If you've hated somebody, you've broken the commandment. It's not the physical act of murder that alone is spoken of here in the commandments, but actually what that, that, that brokenness of heart and of spirit that leads them to, that hatred that leads them to. If you have your Bibles, look with me, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21 Jesus says you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder that's one of the Ten Commandments we just read in Exodus chapter 20. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You see, there's something that happens when we become angry, when we have hatred, when we have bitterness. It not only is a violation of God's law, it's a violation of the principles of love, the principles of God's law, right? And, and by the way, the, the, the person who is hurt the worst when we are angry is not the person that we're angry at. It's us. Anger and enmity and, and hatred and bitterness. It's, it's like taking a poison pill and expecting the other person to die. And so God wants us, God wants the principles of His law, not just not murdering, but having peace and love for other people. Loving God supremely, loving our neighbors, ourselves. Well, not a, I don't really have to love those people that have done me wrong, do I? Well, if they qualify as enemies, yes, because Jesus said, Love your enemies, right? You are the one who comes out ahead when you follow the principles of God's government. Does that make sense? You are the one who's. Who comes out ahead. Verse 27. Jesus goes on. You have heard that it was said of those to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, verse 28, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her in his heart. So this is the principle that God is trying to say. There is a much deeper understanding of the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law, right? And God wants to bring us into harmony with not just the letter of the law, but with the spirit of the law. Now, how is that going to happen? Is it going to happen because I try harder? Is it going to happen because I, because I, I hang around the right people? That wasn't a trick question. Uh, the only way, the only way that, that I can be brought into harmony with the spirit of the law is if God works a miracle in this old heart of mine. He says he'll write his law in, his, in our hearts and put it in our most inward parts. That's the new covenant, Hebrews chapter 10, right? That's what he says he'll do. And that's when he changes my heart so that the spirit of the law is lived out in, the law, in my life, not just I've tried to follow the letter of the law. Oh, I need that miracle. I need that miracle. I'm not trying to say here you shouldn't follow the letter, friends. <laughs> I'm not trying to give license. I'm trying to say God wants to do far more for us than even the church says we ought to do. Even society expects of us. God's standard for ethics is much higher than the world can ever understand. Are you with me on that? Much higher than the world can understand. Well, I can't preach on ethics without causing some controversy. So, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, not this one, but in a minute I'll talk, I'll bring up a subject that may be a good discussion point over lunch. This is from Ellen white Patriots and prophets page three hundred and nine and again I, t- I think about this in relationship to Abraham and, and his half truth half lie that he told about Sarah being his wife and this is what he says false speaking in any matter uh, uh, any every attempt or purpose to deceive our neighbor is here included an intention to deceive is what constitutes a falsehood and by a glance of the eye motion of the hand expression of the countenance of falsehood may be told as effectually as by words all intentional overstatement every hint of insinuation calculated to convey an erroneous or exaggerated impression. Even the statement of facts in such a matter as to mislead is falsehood. This precept forbids every effort to injure our neighbor's reputation by misrepresentation or evil surmising, by slander or talebearing. Even the intentional suppression of truth which may, by which injury may result to others is a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Now, I have heard it said that the, the, the Ninth Commandment says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor right? So that means I can tell lies that help my neighbor. Is that true? Well, this is the problem. I don't think if you, I don't think if you exaggerate, I don't think it'd be a problem if you exaggerated, you know, in speaking nicely about them maybe a little bit, maybe, maybe putting things in the best terms possible, right? But the problem with what we sometimes call white lies is that they still hurt our credibility if people discover they're not true, isn't that, isn't that the case? And relationships are built on this currency we call trust. So the more honest and clear our, and transparent our communication is, the easier it is to develop those relationships and that relationship of trust. Now, what about a very practical application of ethics, probably closer in line with what Abraham dealt with here at Melchizedek's feet. What would you do, church, if somebody said, I just won the lottery, and now I want to give it to the church to pay off our building project? What would you say? Now, this is something we can perhaps discuss over lunch. I'm going to share with you my perspective, and um, you, may, you may be looking for a new pastor afterwards, but um, <laughs> the fact is, in my view, that the lottery is not a good thing in society for society. That's my opinion. My opinion is the lottery is an unfair tax on the poor. And usually giving to the rich. Now, somebody to say, "Well, no, because it doesn't give to the rich. It gives to the it gives to the uh, it goes you know it goes to the state. It supports education. It supports all these other things. Yes, but it, 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 even if it were to support education to everybody equally, rich and poor areas of the state as uh, equally, it would still benefit the rich more than it benefits the poor because the poor generally are the ones who are buying." the tickets. That's just, that's just the fact of the matter. Um, per capita lottery sales are highest in North Carolina's poorest counties. People earn, earning less than 40000 accounted for 28% of South Carolina's population, but made up over 54% of frequent players. Um, poor people were 25% more percent more likely to play for money. of Californians with less than a high school education participated during one week, compared to 30% of those with a college degree. Uh, Texas instant players were more likely to be purchased, or tickets were more likely to be purchased by a person who was out of work than someone who was employed or retired. The highest concentration of Connecticut lottery players was in the poorest cities of New Haven, Hartford, and Bridgeport. Of six counties studied on the west side of Chicago in 2008, the two with the highest unemployment, Bellwood and Maywood, also generated the highest per capita lottery sales. A 1994 study from Indiana University found that from 1983 to 1991, lottery sales tended to rise with unemployment rates. There's all these statistics that we can just look at hard data that says, and I just started about five of the 20 or so that I collected. This hard data that says lotteries don't bless the poor people, they actually bless, or they actually take money from them. Now, um, let me say that in a different way. We're not even talking about the fact that it's gambling here. We're just treating it as if it was actually an investment. Um, when, you, when you buy a lottery ticket, that money uh, does not then come back to those who win it. Usually less than half of your money comes back. It goes to other causes, other issues um, altogether. So, um, the reality is that when we play the lottery, we are gambling. We are not asking for God's blessing. We're expecting for blessings to come from somebody else, from a good luck, perhaps, from, um, from uh, well, maybe we even pray, you know, that we'll get the winning numbers. Um, then it'll be God's, God's blessing. Um, Another study, other studies show that 10 years after winning the lottery, the vast majority, I'm talking about 90 plus percent of winners, are more broke than before they won it. 10 years. In other words, if you were to follow biblical principles of finances, maybe listen to Dave Ramsey, he's got a few of them, in 10 years... You get out of debt, you start saving, you start doing the way God would have, living the way God would have you live, in 10 years, I'll guarantee you'll be better off than you are today. And it's almost a guarantee that even if you win the lottery, as slim as that chance is, you're not going to be better off today. This all comes to me to say, look, I don't think that God is behind the lottery. So... What do we do, then, with those who uh, give money to the church? The fact that churches even consider accepting gifts from lottery winnings demonstrates how the church today has weakened its opposition to gambling. It seems some of God's people have failed to realize gambling is a form of covetousness, a violation of the tenth commandment of God. Covetousness may be rightly called the mother of all sins. Um, The way the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil, Right? That's covetousness. This is a Mark Creech from the Christian Post. Well, churches do consider it. In fact, a couple of recent stories that I would share with you. Um, after I share this statement, the Bible is clear on this issue. The entire enterprise of gambling is opposed to the moral worldview revealed in God's Word. The basic impulse behind gambling is greed, a basic sin that is the father of many other evils. Scripture repeatedly addresses greed, covetousness, and avarice as a sin against God, and often with graphic warning of the destruction that is greed's result. The burning desire for earthly riches leads to frustration and spiritual death. Let me share with you a couple of a couple of recent stories. Um, According to the Associated Press, Pastor Bernard Crabb of the True North Community Church in Port Jefferson, New York, recently announced that an anonymous parishioner had donated a winning lottery ticket worth $3 million to the church. Um, a state lottery official said that the congregation would receive $100,000 annually through 2028. You think that'll be a blessing? Would you take it? Um, only a month ago, Robert Powell hit the Florida lottery jackpot of more than six million this' more than a month now but uh, more than six million then dropped a tithe of 600,000 into his church's offering plate. But Pastor David Tarkington of the First Baptist Church, Orange Park, politely declined and told Powell that the church wouldn't accept the lottery winnings. This is the problem. If you accept the lottery winnings, you have a moral dilemma. How can you speak against gambling? How can you speak against playing the lottery if you accept the lottery? Another pastor, Dr. Lorenzo Hall of uh, El Beth El Divine Holiness Church, was quick to say that he would welcome Powell's gift to the inner city church. Um, What about another story? This is from uh, Pastor Scott Thomas, according to Family News and Focus. Uh, pastor Scott Thomas came to understand this principle recently. He said he faced a very difficult situation some years ago when a deacon in his congregation offered a portion of lottery winnings for a building fund. And Thomas, the pastor of the church, refused the gift, saying, I've just always believed that God doesn't need to use chance to build his church. Moreover he added that impoverished people largely play lotteries and the church shouldn't profit on the backs of the poor. Despite Thomas's opposition however, the church wanted the money so they fired their pastor. <laughs> they accepted the gift and built the building. The attendance dropped from 165 to 56. Several members called the former pastor and said the albatross around our necks is that we are now known as the lottery church. Not the church that God provided for, but the lottery church. This is exactly what Abraham here is saying he doesn't want to happen. I don't want anyone to say that Sodom and Gomorrah made me rich. My God is the possessor of heaven and earth. My God owns everything. One last statement here from John Piper from the Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Christ does not build His church on the backs of the poor. The engine that delivers His righteousness in the world is not driven by the desire to get rich. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not advanced by undermining civic virtue. Let the pastors take their silver and throw it back into the temple of greed. Is it a blessing for the church of Jesus Christ to have the backing of a social sickness that destroys marriages, undermines the work ethic, increases crime, motivates suicide, destroys the financial security of families? Don't play the lottery for Bethlehem Baptist. We will not, I pray, salve your conscience by taking one dime of your plunder or supporting even the thought of your spiritual suicide. Let the widow give her penny and the laborer his wage. And keep your life free from the love of money. Interesting message from John Piper, well-known author and Christian thinker. Christians are to live by high and holy standards, rejecting the values and practices of the world. When they fail in this regard, the credibility of their life-saving witness for Christ can be irreparably lost. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. When I look at the father Abraham, I see that Abraham was willing to make difficult decisions. There were times in his life when he failed, and I'm glad God didn't just give us all of his triumphs, that he included in here the stories of when he made mistakes as well, because it gives us hope, doesn't it, when we see that we don't have to be faultless and perfect, that God still works with us and loves us the same. But I see here in this story of Abraham uh, a, a person who wanted to have his ethics all above board, who wanted to be known as the one who God blessed, the one who was blessed because he followed biblical principles, true principles, and the one that who would be blessed would be a witness to the surrounding neighbors and communities. One act, this one act might have destroyed his witness for years to come for his prosperity, for his posterity, because all, all people would remember was he was blessed because he got this windfall. I say, let's be blessed people because we follow this book, because we have a a, a divine guide for what is right and wrong, unimpeachable ethics. Father in heaven, I just ask that you would bless us today as as we seek to be salt in this earth, light in this earth. You would help us. I don't know what the situations are in our daily lives, in our homes, our workplaces, but you would just help us to be seen as those who people can trust, And when we're blessed, Lord, help them to know it's because you're a great God, and you own everything, and you can, and you will, and you do bless your children. The psalmist said, I've not seen the righteous lacking or a seed begging bread, and we know that you're able to supply all of our needs as a church, as a family, as individuals. I pray that we would just trust you, that we would live our lives Allowing you to write those principles of ethics encoded in Ten Commandments on our hearts. We ask for that miracle. We ask for your saving grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org